Now, if you peel back the wrapping on a concert, a play, a festival, a poetry reading, or an art exhibit in most American communities, you'll find the indelible fingerprints of what arts folks call funders. These arts funders come in all shapes and sizes. There are local, state, and national funders on the public side. There are individual donors, and then there's private individuals and foundations whose contributions are often referred to as cultural philanthropy, which in 2017 contributed nearly $3 billion to America's artists and arts organizations. Needless to say, the people who manage the programs that grant these funds have an interesting job. Who wouldn't want to give away money to deserving folks in their communities? But as is often the case, it's harder than it sounds. The job certainly comes with the power to influence and do good, but also the responsibility to apply that influence judiciously with the clear understanding that gifts given with the best of intentions can do harm as well. Throughout my career, I've worked with many funders on the giving side and as a recipient advisor. Along the way, I've had the privilege of collaborating and learning from some truly creative and insightful souls. Sharnita Johnson, who is the arts program officer at the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, is one of these. As you will hear in this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, she's one of those unique people who can deliver both the good news and bad inherent to her work, all the while maintaining the trust of the people and communities she serves. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and transformation. My name is Bill Cleveland. In my conversation with Sharnita Johnson, we start off with a short discussion of prison arts and the possibility of sharing videos of prominent poets performing at the Dodge Poetry Festival with incarcerated writers. After that, we explore Sharnita's journey into the world of arts philanthropy and her work at the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Part one, call me community. Yeah. I'm good. I had my first Zoom concert. Oh, saw your music stand in your guitar. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a prison choir. They have this thing where they have guest artists come in. They use Liz Lerman's critical response process. And so I played the song and then they gave me all this feedback on it, which was fantastic. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. Mm-hmm. So one issue with prisons is that outside, inside digital access doesn't exist. Yeah. So they have inside systems, Mm -hmm. and those inside systems are like from like 1975. Wow. So one of the things I'm thinking of doing is accessing your poetry festival videos and then trying to figure out a way to to download it. I think that would be such a beautiful thing to do with this. Oh, my God. To really get the poetry to people who are the most isolated who need to have this inspiration and joy. Yeah. And yeah. these are writers. These are people who are yeah. there. They are hungry to, to hear people who do what they're trying to do at the highest level. So yeah. for our conversation this morning, I reconstituted my questions in, in a way that hopefully will make them a little fresher. So almost everybody I talk to, my first The subject is how they define their work and what they do. And I've been asking people what their street name is, what their handle is. My friend Sandy 
She said, oh, I'm a navigator. And of course, Lenny Sloan was the gun runner for the arts. Sharnita, have you got one that pops up for you? Actually, it's funny because I have a very good friend that calls me community. Like whenever I tell her about my work, she's, oh my God, you are so community. (laughs) And actually, when I left Ruth Mott Foundation, they gave me a wand and I think a tiara that said queen of community. Fantastic. That is great. So why? How come? Why is that that name attached to you? So it's interesting because I didn't grow up in a household where we volunteered. My dad had his own business, so he worked all the time. My mother worked full time. I'm the youngest of six kids. So that sort of volunteering at a a soup kitchen or serving on board, that just wasn't my life growing up. And I think it was so important because my family moved from public housing into, you know, we thought we were middle class. We were probably really working class, but that was so important. And I think my parents just really felt all those battles had been won. They had made it into the next level and They thought that the protesting and the advocacy and the marching and the community organizing and the door knocking, they maybe hoped that was done. Mm -hmm. So I didn't experience volunteering and philanthropy and community in that way, really, until I was an adult, until I started to understand that things weren't equal and things looked different for even in my own family. Everybody didn't have the same opportunities and there was disparity there. And then I was the first college graduate in my family on both sides. Proudly, we have many more now, but that was quite a feat. And so I really think becoming aware for my parents, it was very important for us to be in that bubble where everything is safe. You don't have to worry about where you're going to eat. You don't have to worry about where you're going to sleep. We've arrived. And I think as an adult, I really, during undergrad, I started to see, oh, I am in a privileged place through the hard work and sacrifice of my family. And so I think as I got into the nonprofit sector and started to volunteer on boards is when that really started to gel for me. So I was probably my early 20s. So there's a path that led from your growing up in your bubble to this world of philanthropy and in a particular area. So not just philanthropy, but cultural philanthropy that has your street name right in the middle of it, which is community. (laughs) Yeah. What's that journey? As I reflect at the point in my life where I am thinking about legacy and what my story is, and while I'd like to think in some ways it was because of my own hard work, and, and it was a lot of hard work, in many ways I think about it as a destiny. Now, I'm not saying that the universe plotted out my life and said, <laughs> this is what you're going to do. But it really sort of was, there were just some inflection points where I'm very clear that there was a bigger force that wanted me to be in places, at tables, doing things and saying things and moving things beyond what my small mind could envision. Another 
part of your biography is a particular attention to the story before the story, the history. Could you talk a little bit about the role history has played in finding your place in the world? Sure. So I do think I joke, I majored in English in undergrad and I minored in history and I didn't want to teach and I didn't want to be a journalist and I didn't want to write novels. So what that got me was unemployed <laughs> like yeah. out of undergrad and then just fell into some writing at a publishing company and some opportunities to work as an art assistant. And I bought art for magazines and all that fun stuff. And, and then I got into the nonprofit sector. And my first role in the nonprofit sector was at the Museum of African-American History in Detroit. And that's a big museum that exists now, but the precursor to that museum was, which was about the third iteration of the museum. But I got there at a really important time in my life. And I think a really important time in the museum's life. And I learned a lot and I was surrounded by all of these incredible people. And at that point, I realized that I had a bigger mission, that this job wasn't making my career, although it was very foundational and a first step, certainly. But I have been, again, put in places and situations where I could be a voice, where I could be an advocate. That really led to a number of other positions in um, other arts and cultural and healthcare organizations on the fundraising side. And so I was a fundraiser for sort of the first half of my career, but it never occurred to me that I could be on the philanthropy side because I never saw anyone that looked like me, a black woman, in philanthropy in a city like Detroit, which is where I'm from, which has, I think the population is like 90% African-American. So it just never clicked. That was something that I could do, even though I certainly had the skills and the education, et cetera, until I did see someone who looked like me, a black woman in philanthropy who became a mentor to me and helped pave the way for me to get into the field which was not easy. I certainly had some people actively working against me getting into the field, but I certainly had lots of people who were very helpful and opened doors for me and opening those doors and working hard and being so gratified by the work that I was able to do led me into this really kind of crazy philanthropy career because whoever works at four foundations it's hard enough to get into one. I've been so lucky and been able to do work that I still see years later is still very active in places like Flint and Detroit. And have, I've had the opportunity to work in all kinds of philanthropy. So a startup foundation, a $9 billion endowment foundation, smaller foundations, and now um, a mid-sized foundation mostly doing arts grant making and along the way learning so much. And honestly, this journey has given me the opportunity to meet people that I can't even imagine that I even know. It's <laughs> been so incredible. People like yourself, Bill, like, why would we know each other? 
We're like opposite sides of the world, <laughs> like different generations, different paths, yet you have been a constant in my life over the years since we met in Detroit, mm-hmm. by the way. Part two, animating democracy. In the next part of our conversation, Sharnita talks about a historic meeting convened in the fall of 2003 in Flint, Michigan, through an initiative called Animating Democracy. It's a national exchange on art and civic dialogue. Animating Democracy, which is a part of Americans for the Art, is an influential player in the development of the community arts movement in the United States. Their focus at the time was supporting artists across the country who were using arts-based tools and strategies to stimulate civic dialogue and organizing in communities in conflict around issues like discrimination, poverty, education, immigration, and jobs. Sharnita. Everybody I've talked to has pointed to a particular moment or story where particularly people that are involved in this nexus of art and community building, community development, a light bulb went off and they saw that it was more than just a nice thing, that there's some power there. And I'm wondering uh, if one of those stories rise up for you. I know Flint was a was an important moment in your definitely, life. Definitely, definitely. And I have lots. I'll say that because I've been so lucky over the years. But I think something that was really transformational for me was the final convening of the Animating Democracy Initiative, which was a Ford-funded initiative, had their convening in Flint. And there was some work in the community up to that point. So there were some projects happening. There were internationally renowned artists coming to Flint, working with community and actually writing plays, performing, writing music doing visual arts. And it was at that point that I really understood the impact of the arts to just regular people. Like it doesn't have to be a thing that you have to get dressed up to and buy a ticket to. That is something that is, you know, inherently existing in communities and neighborhoods. And in a place like Flint that is again working class blue collar town but they have you know a world class museum there's a symphony and then there's to complement that all of these community based organizations that are doing tap dance and african dance and folkloric dance and music and so it really shifted what i considered what was the value of community and the arts and the way that the arts can impact community in a transformational, not transactional way. Mm. And, and so that kind of really shifted my thinking and really led to a, a big public art project that was pretty contested at first. It was a grant to an organization that was doing community murals around the city which meant in some instances, regular people, not artists, were actually doing the art making. And some of the pieces were contested by some folks because the aesthetic wasn't what they expected. Mm-hmm. And the culminating project was a large scale mural in a prominent downtown location. 
So there was a lot of pushback because people were really worried, like how big, how prominent, where is it going to be and who's going to actually paint it? So fast forward, there were a number of community meetings where pretty hostile people came to the meetings to meet the muralists who actually happened to be from the Flint area, from Beecher, Hubert Massey, and they were mad. And then the next meeting, some more mad people would come. And then he just had such a way with people and he's so personable and he's such an advocate for he public art. He believes that's so important. When you give functionality to artwork, it has a, a very important role other than just being a piece of artwork that hangs up on the wall. That was Hubert Massey. He goes on to describe his work, The Crossroads of Innovation at the TCF Center in Detroit. This right here is the, uh, the tile piece that's on the side over here. This is the strength of the community. And the suitcase represents the deportations of uh, Mexicans back down to um, Mexico during the 30s or so. I listen to people's stories and I translate those stories into pieces of artwork. My thing is to talk about the revitalization of the city and how to uh, sort of give a, uh, a visual narrative on the positive things about communities on how we can make a difference. So around the third meeting, people were warming up to him and they, he was asking them, what's important about this city to you? What do you love about the city? How'd you get here? And by the fourth or fifth meeting, people were coming to the meetings with photographs of their parents saying, my parent, my dad came here to lay the bricks on the downtown thoroughfare, which is made out of red bricks. Or my parent, my grandparents came here and my grandfather worked in the factory or whatever the story was. And he incorporated all of those stories into the mural and over time really became an important fixture. We set him up in a downtown studio and folks could just wander in and ask him what he was doing and sharing stories. And that culminated in an amazing mural that is in a prominent downtown location and is a, quite a source of pride, I think, for many people in the city. But that, again, influenced me in so many ways because we had so much opposition, even from elected officials around it. So it really gave me some pause to think about, well, how do we make something as maybe amorphous as a large scale mural that nobody knew what it was going to look like important? to everybody in Flint, and particularly the people in the neighborhood that it is located in. And I think we were pretty successful with that. And in fact, one of the commissioners from the Historic Commission, who was a very vocal opponent of the mural because it was on, in a historic neighborhood, we found out that we went to a hearing and he said, murals are graffiti. And they should mm -hmm. not be painted on buildings. <laughs> so again, fast forward, we were able to get the mural on the building because somebody brought to that little studio on Saginaw Street a photo, old vintage postcard that showed that there was originally a sign painted on the side of the mm -hmm. building that was the exact dimension. 
So we were able to get approval. And actually this commissioner at one point came up to me years later and said, I just want to apologize to you. Mm. And I was a little bit confused. And I said, apologize for what? And he said, I gave you so much flack about that mural, but I love it. I, I look at it every day. I can see it from my house. And when my family and friends come to visit, it's the first thing that I show them. So that was, again, transformational because I just saw how what the power of love in the arts can do. So it really reminds me of a lesson that I learned over and over again. And that's particularly in communities that are struggling, like Flint was at the time mm-hmm. and continues to struggle. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And these are moments in, in a family's history, in a community's history, when conflict is most likely to occur because of the stress that comes with the trouble. Absolutely. And with the, the, the sense of being put upon or, or of losing a sense of identity. And your story has two parts. One of them is people being prickly, don't tell us. Mm-hmm. And then the flip, which we see over and over again, the process of rising up the story and moving people from us and them to we, our story, my story, your story, and then seeing it manifest on a wall. Transformation is the right word for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw things like that occur in war zones where you have people who are afraid of each other more than just through words. And so that transcends it. Part four, fellow travelers. So, Sharnita, you you talk about yourself and the path that you've gone down. And I know that you also pay attention to those folks around you and those are coming up behind you. And one of the things I like to ask is when you catch sight of some of your younger fellow travelers, what are the kinds of things you want to share with them to help them along their way? So I think a couple of things, because I do think I'm an active mentor to some people. And I think about just at a time when I just needed someone who looked like me, who had perhaps lived some similar experiences to just affirm that what I experienced and what I heard was exactly what I experienced and what I heard. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's important for me to play that role. I think philanthropy is underrepresented by people of color, although it's growing, but in terms of foundation presidents, I think maybe the stat is 2% of foundation presidents are people of color. So I think I have a very, I have a very privileged role. I'm not discounting that at all. I have worked very hard along the way. And I think somebody helped me and not just in my career, but in my life. And so I'm always open to if someone says, hey, can I call you? Can we talk about X, Y, Z? Can you tell me about this position, this job? Do you know anything about X, Y, Z? And I might not call you back right away. 
<laughs> you might have to text me a couple times, but I will get to you because again, someone helped me. So I do think it's particularly in philanthropy in the nonprofit sector. We are a different breed of people. The folks that want to be in the nonprofit sector, we see the value in this crunchy, unpredictable work in this sector. And you give so much and you don't get paid necessarily a lot, but I do tell people to follow their passions. I've been lucky. Again, don't give up. It wasn't an easy sort of trajectory for me and there were twists and turns, but there is someone there that has care for you, that wants you to be a success, that wants to help you, that's not threatened by you. And so I do take that role very seriously, particularly with young people of color who, you know, I, my goal is to get them into philanthropy or the nonprofit sector and keep them there mm-hmm. if they want to be, because we need those perspectives. We mm-hmm. see how financial resources, particularly in the arts community, are disproportionately absent in communities of color and supporting leaders of color in the sector. And what's what is needed there is diverse people and diverse leaders to bring their lived experience and their professional experience to bear to make those changes. I know that this is something you've been working really hard at in your current job and other jobs. And once again, it reminds me of how important it is to make space for the the expertise that comes from different stories being lived in the world, especially in places where the consequence of error in philanthropy is actually quite significant. Some people think it's a benign act. You give some money away, it either works or it doesn't work. But as you're very well aware, the wrong gift at the wrong time or without support or with unreasonable expectations can take a good story and turn it bad. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I've certainly learned is I have no business trying to assume that I know the parts and pieces of somebody else's story. So last question really has to do with here and now. We are in a moment in human history where we are actually reminded in a pretty visceral way that that sort of abstract idea, we're all connected, I am because you are, Mm-hmm. is just an everyday lived experience. You're either doing your six feet or you're not. You've either got your mask <laughs> on or you're not. And anybody can affect anybody else here and across the world. And so what do you see happening in philanthropy in terms of trying to meet the moment that we're in? So, so that's a good question because I think we think about it a lot. I haven't literally seen my grantees since the beginning of the pandemic. I've seen them on the Zoom, but I haven't seen a live performance. I haven't gone to a museum or an art gallery. And we don't know how my community-based partners they're necessarily dealing with. And so I think philanthropy and Dodge, too, we were able to pivot fairly quickly and get some of that immediate relief out the door at the very top of the pandemic. 
Philanthropy is not necessarily swift moving. It's not as, as bureaucratic as government maybe, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's a nimble sector. But <laughs> I'm very happy to say that Dodge was able to get some emergency resources out to our grantees and others. There were a number of statewide funds, emergency funds that were providing resources for food and medicine and PPE. And Dodge was able to support that. And we were also able to support some of our grantees that were most vulnerable. So BIPOC-led organizations working in BIPOC communities. We were able to get resources out into intermediaries that had a larger network of folks that they were serving. And on the art side, we were able to get some dollars to dance workers and theater workers. And I'm co-chairing a statewide arts recovery fund, the New Jersey Arts and Culture Recovery Fund. So we've been diligently raising money for that fund since the beginning of the pandemic as well. And we've reached over $2 million. The fund is open and people are applying and I'm very happy about that. But it's taken a long time and we've been shaking every tree and hopefully we can continue to fundraise. So, and the Dodge Foundation was able to make a pretty significant investment in that fund as well, which I'm very glad about. And we're thinking about this is phase one for what's happening with COVID. We don't know what's going to happen in a month or two months or six months or a year. And we certainly know the devastation that the arts community has experienced with no capacity to earn dollars necessarily from ticket revenues or events. The pandemic is the antithesis of what the arts do. The arts bring us together. <laughs> and that is not a good thing to do right now. Reimagining what arts and culture engagement is going to look like is a big question mark. So one of the ideas that has been floating in my mind and with others in conversation is that at some point we will be entering into something that it might be described as reconstruction and at a lot of levels, social, mm -hmm. political, economic, in terms of racial justice, all that. And yeah. what you just described, which is, yeah, when you think artists, you think people coming together, right? Mm -hmm. So are, are you thinking that at, when, in fact, the doors reopen, when the streets repopulate, that there's a particular role for the makers and creators of our community to help with that? There is a critical role. And I'll say as devastating as the pandemic has been for all of us, and particularly those who have lost loved ones, communities that have been devastated by this, but the creatives are still creating. I was on a, a Zoom earlier with some young public artists. They are talking about these large-scale projects that they're doing in communities across the state. And they're telling this story. So the, the artists and the makers are going to tell the story of the pandemic in a way that journalism isn't going to tell it. They're going to tell it in a, they're going to tell it through pictures and stories and music and poetry. And they're doing it. If there are bright spots in this pandemic, it's that the creatives continue to create. Yep. No matter what, you can't keep a story down. 
The stories keep happening. Sharnita, it has been such a privilege to have known you uh, for all this time and to continue conversations and collaborations. And I thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, in no time at all, it will be Sharnita Johnson week at Change the Story, Change the World. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and to virtually see you. And so thanks for the invite. Take care, Bill. Stay safe. Bye-bye. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And remember, the show notes for this episode and all other episodes include full transcripts of our conversations and links to all the references and resources mentioned. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It is written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are composed by Judy Munson. Stay safe, stay well, and subscribe to this podcast. Now, a postscript. Some of Sharnita Johnson's most impactful work has taken place behind the scenes at the Dodge Foundation. When she arrived in 2016, she recognized that there was a serious disconnect between the arts program's historic constituency of grantees and New Jersey's incredibly diverse cultural ecosystem. Namely, artists and arts organizations of color were barely represented. Since then, Sharnita and the Foundation's leadership have worked extremely hard to change that imbalance, both within the Foundation and externally through their giving. In November of 2020, Sharnita hosted a panel discussion about the Dodge Foundation's significant and challenging journey towards greater equity at the Grantmakers for the Arts annual conference. A link to the transcript of that conversation can be found in this episode's show notes.